So this summer, we will be getting back into the Psalms as we did uh, in th the past couple of summers. But as you see from the text on the screen, we're not in Psalms today, though. We're going to be in Romans chapter 12, verses 1 through 2, so please turn there if you already have it. But um, as you're turning, I want to share a little bit of my story with you. I have always loved music. I've been playing the drums since I was 12 years old. I then became a Christian in my teenage years. I fell in love with my youth group. I met my still best friend there. And they were, um, they were a lifeline for me as I transitioned into living a Christian life. In 2004, as this picture shows you, I went to Big Stuff Camp in Panama City Beach, Florida. It's an amazing trip. Youth people, take good pictures of your group. It's always fun to go back and look at fun pictures of yourself. I bet you can't pick me out in this picture, though, because I had long blonde hair at that time. And you're like, wait, what? <laughs> and so, yes, I did. And there I am, 16 years old, newer Christian. I was playing drums in the, play, the praise band on Wednesdays. I was making amazing new friends. And I was ready to see what 2,000 students let loose on Panama City could do, which is a lot of stuff especially when you gave us as much freedom as we had on that trip. So one thing I remember was being very influenced by my leaders and those seniors that were ahead of me. I was a great, great time, great to get to know them. They had a big impact on my life. The biggest thing, though, that stood out to me that I still remember about this trip was the band. Fog machines, light shows, all the, the stuff. Their performance was amazing. And I couldn't believe what I was hearing. It blew my mind. And I thought to myself, is this heaven? Have I reached it? Is it here now in front of me? But as the last night came, there was always a couple of extra songs on the last night. I remember a lot of drama going on in our youth group. And some of you were thinking, drama with teens? This is a mystery. How is that possible? No, it's possible. All right. And so they were on their knees. I remember this. On their knees. And they were weeping over their sins, weeping over the fact that they had been so mean to each other, and they were asking for forgiveness, and they were praying. It was powerful. However, though, for some who attended that event and saw those things take place, their emotional response during that time didn't pan out in their life later. A portion of my youth group would more associate now with agnosticism than Christianity. So what do you want, what are, what's one thing we can take away from that story? Well, it's this, that worship is not just singing a song and being emotional about it. Worship is who we are. We are worshipers, which of course involves singing praise to God. It's not less than that. It does involve that, but we're more than that. As James Smith's book says in his book, You Are What You Love, Smith identifies that to be human is to worship. And that worship is not optional. Whether we are aware of it or not, every human being on this planet is worshiping something. We will always, at some point, end up in a state of worship because we cannot help it. We are hardwired to love something as ultimate. Matt Chandler summarized that statement in three words. Worship is attention. I want to prove it to you. So let's think outside of the church. 
and music and those kinds of things. I want to prove that you worship every day of your life. In 2014, Ohio State won the national championship. I'm not from Ohio. I'm from Tennessee. I'm a Tennessee Vols fan. So I just wanted to give this applicable for those, the 75% of you that are here. They defeated the University of Oregon. Some of you probably remember the score. And that feeling of your team winning, of watching every game along the season, and the feeling of elation that I have not felt since 1998 when I was a teenager. We worship that feeling of elation when you get to buy your dream car. Or the first date you went on. Or the first kiss with your spouse. Or my grandpa's here this morning getting a hole-in-one for the first time after you've played for decades and watched all your friends get one. Marriage. The birth of a child. Graduating high school or college. The first paycheck from a full-time job. Driving to your friend's house with your fresh new driver's license for the very first time. Getting your first cell phone. We all worship 24-7. We even worship in our dreams. And the big question facing you this morning and me is what or who do you worship? With this, let's read God's word. Romans 12, verses 1 through 2. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, don't miss this, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good, acceptable, and perfect. Let's pray. God, this is your word. Food for famished ones, freedom for the slave, riches for the needy soul. Would you speak to us today through your word and show us Christ in your name. Amen. So I think to understand this text well, since we're hopping right in the middle of Romans, it's good to give you some context so that we interpret this as well as we can. Romans, the book of Romans that you hold in your hands, was written by Paul under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit to the church in Rome. Paul is not the founder of this church, which is not usual for his letters, normally he is, and he's actually never met most of them in person. He is writing to churches who have experienced a giant culture shock because the Christian Jews, those are, were Jewish people that became and believed in Jesus Christ, and along with their fellow Jews, were ex expelled from Rome. They were pushed out from the expulsion under Emperor Claudius. And now they've been welcomed back to Rome. So they're coming back. And as you can imagine, they're thinking, man, they're going to be happy we're back, guys. They, they don't know what's coming. I bet they were absolutely stinking it up while we were gone. But that's not what happened. They come back to find churches full of Gentile believers. And actually, the churches were growing. And they're like, there creates a big conflict then between those Christian Jews and these Christian Gentiles coming together again. So Paul's main motivation to writing them 
you find in chapters 1 and 16. So if you read both of those chapters, you get a good understanding of what he's writing them about. In chapter 1, he longs to see them, to finally meet them in person. And also he writes them this letter to encourage them in the salvation that they share together. And he actually wants to expand their understanding of salvation in the gospel. And then we see in 16 that Paul has a missionary purpose. He wants to go to Spain and be a missionary there and preach the gospel to those that are lost there. And he wants their help as he comes into Italy and then up into Spain. So then what we see is 11 chapters, chapters 1 through 11, unpacking how God accomplishes that great salvation. It is some of the most amazing scripture you could ever read, and I would encourage you to do so this week in your quiet time as you think about and ponder Christ. So let's unpack this together. Verse 1, my first point, spiritual worship. What I do in the youth group is I ask them, I, I say, if you're there, say word. So if you're there, say word. I love it. Great. You're now in youth group. There you go. Verse 1, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. The people that are addressed here are believers like you and me, if you believe in Jesus Christ this morning. They are Jews and Gentiles saved through Jesus Christ alone for salvation. To understand verse 1 in a rich way, though, I think we need a little bit of an, un like, to unpack a little more. There's some weird language in here, like our bodies being a living sacrifice. What does that even mean? Well, I think it comes from the identity that the Christian now has when they believe in Jesus Christ. And identity, as you would know, is very important. What you think about yourself matters. And who we are and understanding who we are and what we become in Christ matters as well. So Jesus and the Bible helps us interpret this. Our identity in the New Testament is described as priests. 1 Peter 2, 5 through 9. We're temples. 1 Corinthians 6, 19 through 20. And sacrifices. Romans 12, 1. And if you know a little bit about the Old Testament, you'll know that that basically sums up the entire sacrificial system. And we've become those things through Christ and the Holy Spirit dwelling within us. And so there's that, this big push, though. So the Jews that don't believe in Jesus, they look back to the temple as the center focus, where Christians look to Christ as a once and for all sacrifice for sins. So one text rounds this out really well in Hebrews 13, 15. It says this, Through him, then, let us draw continually, offer up a sacrifice of praise to God. That is the fruit of the lips that acknowledge his name. And do not neglect to do good and to share what you have. For such sacrifices are pleasing to God. Therefore, this is why Christians offer themselves as living sacrifices to Christ, presenting our bodies to God, holy and acceptable, because Christ did this. Christ did that in his life, in his living, in his death on a cross, in his resurrection. Christ did that. So we model Jesus. And I want us to say that we're worshiping all the time. And this is a 24-7 kind of thing. J.A. Smith, again, he says this, and I don't want you to miss it. Our wants and longings and desires 
are at the core of our identity. I'll say that again. Our wants, the things you want in life. Our longings, the things that you most want to be. And your desires, the things that you do and the things that you love to do are at the core of your identity. The wellspring from which our actions and behavior flow. And if you want to know why, why you act and do the things you do, just look at what you desire, long for, and, and want in life. Christosom, though, connects this understanding with our text in verse 1. He's an older brother in the Lord. You can see the dates that he, and that picture, not quite photorealistic, I don't think, I hope. Uh, but yes, Christosom. He says this, how is the body to become a sacrifice? So that's a good question. How does this text say that? What do, how is it become a, to become a sacrifice? He says, let the eye look on no evil thing. And it has already become a sacrifice. Let the tongue say no filthy thing. And it has become an offering. Let your hand do nothing evil. And it has become a whole burnt offering. So let's go back to my testimony that I gave a little bit in that picture of Big Stuff 2004. There's a positive and negative example there. Positive example is there are true worshipers out of that group. There are those who were transformed by the renewal of their mind and are still walking with the Lord today. They would be the positive example of that. They, through their hardship, trials, and sufferings, have continued to follow the Lord. And then we have the negative example, and I really want the parable of the sower in your mind if you know that text. And, as, or, and one of the seed goes out, it falls in the rocky ground, and it kind of grows up real quickly. Everybody thinks it's going to bear fruit, but yet the sun comes out and quenches it because of um, suffering. And Jesus would say, because the world, the longings of the world, they want more than Christ. And that is very true, and we see that as the negative example in my story. That those who love singing, passion, emotional experiences with God, and yet wanted nothing to do with God outside of those things. Those are the examples that I've seen and walked through in my own life. So true worship then, true spiritual worship, is offering our lives as a sacrifice all the time. Not just on Sundays. So my second point, renewing of the mind. It really connects well. It says this, do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind. That by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good, acceptable, and perfect. The text leaves us, church, with no confusion. Absolutely no confusion about what God's will is for the Christian's life. You call yourself a Christian. If you believe you're a Christian this morning, guess what? You have no confusion this morning about what you're supposed to do in life. You're like, hold on. I don't believe that. You're like, who should I marry? Where should I go to college? Where should I? Yeah, all those things kind of come to mind. But God's will for your life is right here. What is God's will for the Christian? Are those people who have repented and believed? in Jesus Christ in the gospel is for them to be transformed by the renewal of their minds for your minds to be renewed what's God's will for your life for your mind to be renewed by the gospel by his word 
God gave you a Bible to be transformed by. And it happens, what's amazing is, he specifically plays this out by stating some filters. By the Spirit's filter, by God's Word, the Bible. We are to filter what is good, acceptable, and perfect in the eyes of God. That's why he gave us these things. And this is contrasted with the negative command that you see right there at the beginning of verse 2. Do not be conformed to the world. So with all of our definitions that we gave at the beginning and throughout are now zooming back to your brain into the forefront, we can now ask an important question. Outside of praise music, I don't want us to think just on when we sing. I want us to think holistically, what do you worship? And that is an important question. You're like, but I don't believe in Jesus. I don't believe in God. It's still an important question. What do you worship? Or how do you worship? You're worshiping right now. You're worshiping right now. If you're watching at home or watching this at another point or you're on vacation or wherever you are, this morning, right now, in this moment, you are worshiping something. As we said at the beginning, our actions, behaviors, desires, equal worship. It's a great mathematical equation. That's the kind of math I get on board with that makes sense. Actions, behaviors, and desires equal worship. So at CCF, in our services, we have worship, all caps, via scripture reading, prayer, music, sermon, and the ordinances. This morning we got to see baptism, but we also monthly do the Lord's Supper. We saw that in the 9 o'clock hour. Our whole service this morning, right now, is an act of worship. Therefore, who is getting your worship? Who are you giving your worship this morning? Is it God? Is it the person you're sitting next to? Is it you? Or is it what you want to do after this? What's getting your worship right now? You should ask the person, someone close to you this morning, how is your mind being renewed today? The answer is woven into our services. Prayer, singing, preaching, listening, Bible reading, etc. All those kinds of things. Our Sunday morning gatherings are helping us to be transformed by the renewal of our minds. And that's amazing that God has even used the Sunday morning gathering as a way to actively accomplish your mind being transformed. So don't think of church as the second option. Don't think of church as when we get around to it. Prioritize it. Why? Because God will use it to transform your mind. It's directing us to the ultimate source of worship, which is God. So we want to ask a question that I hope you've already been pondering. What or who did you worship this week? What is competing for worship in your heart? And I'm going to give you nine things that Paul Tripp gave in his book, Awe. It's a great book. It has a very cool design, very memorable. So he gives nine things. Let's look at those real fast. Number one, self. Life 
is not about you. You were brought into this world. That is, by definition, a celebration of the beauty and the intelligence of God. Life is not about getting your, <laughs> your will, right? It's about getting, giving, or allowing um, God to transform our minds and for his will to be worked out in our life. So two, marriage. And I'm going to add relationships. I'm going to add best friends, girlfriend, boyfriend, whatever. So this kind of will hopefully get everyone into it, too, marriage, relationships. No human being can satisfy your soul, and only God can do it. And you're like, Nick, that's dumb. Some people think that. They're like, that is the dumbest thing I've heard. People satisfy me all the time. No, they don't. Not completely. Because the person you're sitting next to, or in if you find your identity in the person sitting next to you, or that friend, or that spouse, or that relationship, any other person, you will be disappointed in that person. You may even be disappointed right now in that person. Because they cannot satisfy your soul. But they're competing for your worship. Three. And those are all good things, by the way. Don't want you to think that they're not good things. They are good things, but they are competing for our worship. Three. Kids. Your children are not actually your children. You're like, yes, they are. Well, yeah, they are. But God gave them to you. They are God's good gift to us. And they exist for God. But yet we allow kids to control all of our lives. Families, parents, I do youth ministry and children's ministry. Been doing it for 10 years. Can I give you some advice? Your kids will value what you value. And they see it. And if church, your Christian walk, your weekly habits in the, in the spiritual disciplines, like reading the Bible, praying, those kinds of things, if those are absent in your life, your kids will know. So are you worshiping your kids over God? Four, success. God calls you to be fruitful and productive. Amen. Yes, this is, there's some very productive very successful people here this morning. But the moment that your success is an ident identity, it's what you identify most with, you'll become a slave to the never-ending system. Success is not the ultimate God. Five, renown. You just want to be the most important person around. That's God's place. Six, comfort. Comfort is not sinful. It's not sinful. But you'll never find paradise here, though you keep trying. Paradise was never meant to be here. It's in the next phase with God. Seven, excitement. Go ahead and buy season tickets to Ohio State. I'm, the text is freeing you to do that. But guys, if you're more excited with touchdowns, then with the life-transforming ministry of the gospel in the local church, you need to reevaluate what's most important. Eight, leisure. Again, this world will never be your paradise. Only with God will you find that. So it's not sinful to enjoy vacation. You should rest. But just remember what's most important. And nine, pleasure. Pleasure was created by God for you and me. But the creative pleasures of this world are meant to be a finger pointing to the ultimate pleasure. God. 
through Christ. So church, you'll see what you worship by looking at what you give your time, energy, talents, and treasures to. That's what you worship. So this text calls us, though, to repent of not worshiping the way we should. And to remember that this is a daily, 24-7 kind of thing that Christians must do. Church is not the magic hour. If you're relying on Sunday to be a five-hour energy for your spiritual life, it's going to fail just like an actual five-hour energy is not going to give you five hours of energy. Here's what I would recommend for you to help you understand why transforming happens this way. So let's, let's look at this and just think about how this can happen in your life. Gathering regularly with the body, that's on Sunday morning, small group, other opportunities that we have to do that. And then worshiping the Lord through spiritual habits during the week. There's a great book, I'm going to give it to you now, Habits of Grace. It's in the bookstall. It's a great book. And I think you should really um, look at that and read that and, and follow its wisdom. It's really, really a great book. And this is why every week we want to walk away. From church on Sunday morning, not entertained. I want to say that again so you hear it. That's why we want you to walk away every Sunday, not entertained, but having said, I heard from God. I was transformed because I heard from God. Emotion is not everything. It can be very helpful, powerful, and, and awesome when God really works in emotional ways. I love when it happens. But what are we supposed to learn from 11 chapters of theology in Romans? Just what Paul learned. And here's what he said. Here's what he learned. That this amazing theology of God's salvation should erupt in us a desire to sing to God. I told you we talked about singing. Charles Spurgeon said this. A child of God should be a visual, visible, beautiful beatitude for joy and happiness and a living doxology for gratitude and adoration. When our minds are transformed, church, we sing at home. The third point, sing at home. Go back to chapter 11, verses 33 through 36. And I want, if you are okay with marking in your Bible, you need to mark this spot. Romans 11, 33 through 36 says... Oh, the depth and the riches and the wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and how inscrutable his ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord or who has been his counselor or who has given a gift to him that he might be repaid? That's a hypothetical question, church. The answer is nobody. Nobody has done these things with God. Nobody has said, oh yeah, I did this for you, God, now give me this. Nobody has done that. It's in the text right there. It's hypothetical. Because for from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be glory forever. Amen. Nothing can stir the heart like a good song can. If you've ever listened to the opening lead lines of don't stop believing, you understand that power. If you're listening in the radio and it comes on and you just turn the radio up just a little more and you roll the windows down. And you sing just a little louder. It is the deep riches and wisdom and knowledge of God that drives Paul to worship and should drive us. 
It is actually in God's unsearchable glories, in his mind, in his creativity, that Paul is brought to his knees to sing. It is theology that leads to doxology, or praise to God. That's what that word means. If you were to bring, or to begin running through the Bible, start to finish, and you read every psalm, song, hymn, or doxology in it, what are you going to find as a summary? That the theology of the writer was directed to God, and it was what was told about God that drove the writer to praise. It reminds me of Job. And if you're looking for a really good thing to read this week, to stir your emotions, to praise God, read Job. Job loses everything. Job loses it all. And he questions God, and God comes down in a whirlwind with fire, or it's like lightning and everything else, and it's just insane. And God's like, oh yeah, I'm going to tell you something, Job. Where were you when I made everything? And Job's like, holy moly. This is unbelievable theology. What Job needed was God. Not to be told why God was doing what he did. And the same thing goes for us. J.I. Packer says, theology is for doxology and devotion. That is, the praise of God and the practice of godliness. Those two things go together. Praise of God, practice of godliness. They are always together. It should therefore be presented in a way that brings awareness of the divine presence. Theology is at its healthiest. When it is consciously under the eye of God, of whom it speaks, and when it is singing to his glory. It makes me think of Psalm 100, 1 through 2. What is singing? Well, it is this. Make a joyful noise to the Lord, all the earth. Sometimes joyful noises don't mean good noises, right? So just, just a helpful understanding. And it also says all the earth. We'll get to that right here in a second. Verse 2. Serve the Lord with gladness. Come into his presence with singing. So real fast. It said all people, all creation, all the earth. And there are some Christians here who call themselves a Christian who would tell me, I don't sing. My, my question is, why? Well, I have a bad voice. Men don't sing. Blah, blah, blah. Whatever excuse we might make. And my question to you is, then why do you not trust what the Bible says for you to do? The Bible tells you to do it, whether it's good or not. And you have to ask yourself a question, why don't I sing if you don't? And the answer you may find is you just don't like God. There's a famous sermon from Alistair Begg, and he went to a large contemporary church. They had smoke, lights, club music. The band was just beginning to crescendo as the countdown came up, and everything got real loud and crazy, and then here comes the worship pastor. How do y'all feel? Just losing his mind. And Beg famously says, don't ask me how I feel. I just yelled at my dog this morning. I spilled my coffee all over myself. My kids haven't stopped screaming since I got in the car, and you're asking me how I feel. I feel like a miserable wretch. So church, and I love Beg. 
<laughs> Alistair Beck here, he says, don't ask me how I feel. Ask me what I know. And you should ask that question too. Because we're not going to feel like singing sometimes. But singing sometimes is all we can do. Because he's worthy of it. So Paul acknowledges God, acknowledges this theology that just erupts in singing for him. And church, this is why we have a, a scriptural call to worship when we begin. We're not trying to get you hyped up into some crazy emotional fit. We want you to come into the presence of God. So you need scripture, not club music. So then our singing energizes our worship as we hear God's word. And our prayer and our confession and our understanding shows us our need for the morning. So Andrew's singing. So every song that is chosen here at our church, we want to, we want to filter it because I love Alistair Beck. He says, as the congregation sings, so that congregation goes. What we sing about God matters. And in America and in my younger years, I sadly associated good, passionate worship music with big sounds, stirring repetition and highs and lows in music and, and dark spaces. And I didn't care at all. I had no concern for what the song said about God or what the, the preacher of God had to say. I wanted to be stirred emotionally. I wanted to be entertained. Church, that's not authentic worship. True, authentic singing is never disconnected from godly living and repentance. A helpful illustration of this was in the Welsh Revival in Wales in 1904 through 1905, and it triggered a kind of an avalanche of revival around it. There was assumed to be over 100,000 conversions in a year's time. There was no big band. No fog machines, no pre-service emotional stirring, no coffee shops, no hipsters, and no over-the-top performance videos. Their main hymn book was made up almost completely of psalms. And after the sermon would be minutes, and I said minutes, not seconds, of prayer and silence. And then you would hear someone begin to sing a psalm or a hymn, and then the whole church would erupt in praise. An eyewitness of the revival says, on all sides there was a solemn gladness of men and women upon whose eyes had dawned the splendor of a new day. The foretaste of whose glories they are enjoying in the quickening sense of fellowship and a keen, glad zest for righteousness and the joy of living. True works of God and true worship comes with godliness and a love for God's word. Not apart from that. They said that there were moments, in those moments of silence, of silent prayer, you would hear people begin to start weeping. Because they realized that they were sinners. And God was holy. In their reading and prayer. One of the psalms they sang was Psalm 96, and it says this. So sing to the Lord a new song. Sing to the Lord all the earth. Sing to the Lord and bless his name. Tell of his salvation from day to day. Declare his glories among the nations, his marvelous works among the peoples. 
For great is the Lord, and greatly to be praised. Amen. He is to be feared above all gods, for all the gods of the peoples are worthless idols. But the Lord made the heavens. Splendor and majesty are before him, and strength and beauty are in his sanctuary. Church, as I close, sometimes singing is all we can do. Sometimes singing is the only thing that's left. When Bethany's dad and Reagan, their dad was dying of a stroke. And my buddy Daniel got up, he brought his guitar up to the ICU, and we just sang on, stor- on Jordan's stormy banks, I stand. I cannot read those lyrics for you because I would cry them out. It would be real bad. But man, what a beautiful hymn. And it's all we could do. We couldn't say anything anymore. We just kept weeping and singing. Sometimes that's all you can do. In Greg Gilbert's book, What is the Gospel, which we also have out in the bookstall, him and a few friends went to Yellowstone National Park. And I want to say I've seen a few people on my social media feeds that have done some out west trips recently and the sad reality is a lot of what I saw God was not included in one thing but Greg Gilbert and his friends they go and they're in that Yellowstone and they want to get off the beaten path they want to see the best views that no one sees and then they come across this absolutely stunning view and they can't talk No one can say a word because it just so stuns them. And his friend with his really bad tone deaf voice and joyful awestruck singing said to God this song. O Lord my God, when I in awesome wonder consider all the worlds thy hands have made. I see the stars and I hear the rolling thunder. Thy power throughout the universe displayed. Then sings my soul, my Savior God, to thee. How great thou art. How great thou art. And then you see, as we close, one of my favorite verses in that song is this. And when I think that God, his son not sparing, sent him to die, I scarce can take it in. That on that cross, my burdens gladly bearing, he bled and died to take away my sin. I really want your attention. There are some here, and you are here. You do not believe those words. You've never believed it. You may say, Nick, I've been in church my whole life. I was homeschooled, for goodness sakes. If you've never believed those words, would you believe the gospel right now? It's okay to admit it. It's okay to admit that you've sat in church and never really worshipped God. I ask that you would believe today so that you can sing that song for real. That you can mean it. And one day raise your hands, bow your head. Cry, contemplate, and love God from your heart.
But as you leave, continue to worship. As you walk in the hallway, as you go to lunch, as you talk with friends, as you meet new people, as you do things tonight and as you go throughout your week, worship God and be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Let's pray.